when we're looking at like what are the immediate impacts, burn scar was one of the, the big things that were contributing to flood and fire. And you know, it happens very quickly. There's some literature around the regrowth and, and how long it takes for uh for us to start recovering. But you know, we wanted to look at the immediate impact when when that fire happened and then there's a flood, that's like just two bad things on top of each other. So yeah, the, the flood for us, the burn fire scar risk was kind of the most exciting aspect of that, being able to tell that story most efficiently. Hello and welcome to Sartastic Beasts and where to find them. This is episode number three and I'm your host, Letty. And today the episode is dedicated to the much-awaited story that Letty has been yapping about for quite a while, and that's wildfires and flooding in British Columbia. And today we have with us two very special guests from Spark Geo. The first is James Banting, who is the Vice President of Research at Spark Geo. He leads a global and diverse team of earth and data scientists, technology professionals, and software developers. His team primarily focuses on academic approaches to earth sciences, and they inform novel business practices. The second guest today is Natalia Domerod, and she is a technical project manager at SparkGeo. Data and specialized technologies have been a very large part of her life for over a decade, and she considers herself extremely fortunate to work on many fascinating data-driven projects, not just in academia, but also in public and private sectors. She's also had the opportunity to lead and grow a diverse technical team and also showcase the power of data and technology. So we have two guests today from SparkGeo, and the reason we have the guests on our show today is because their team put out an, a very interesting storyboard map about the wildfires in British Columbia and how that was linked to the flooding that occurred in November last year in British Columbia in Abbotsford. Lenny personally is interested because uh, in her past life she was a flood product owner and one of her teams had mapped this flood. When this uh, storyboard came out, actually when they started talking about it sometime in April, I believe, Lady was curious because they used satellite imagery and they had this interactive map that walks you through in a very in very simple terms about how the story of the wildfires that occurred right from the start of the heat dome event that occurred right at the start of the year last year and then how that led to wildfires and Lytton went up I think in June 2021 and then um, there were a couple of other wildfires also and they've actually put that out in the story map and then they they show you the severity of the fires and how that eventually increased the flood risk and eventually led to the flood uh, flooding in BC. So there was this um, correlation between the events and burn scars was um, the primary topic of interest. This is specifically what got Letty interested and it was very, very nice that they actually, uh, Natalia and James, accepted the offer to come and talk to us about the story. There's a lot of media hype right now about it um, and Letty will put in some links in the show notes but and there's also i think a youtube video now on the deep dive that the team itself has done so if you go to spark geo's uh, youtube channel you should probably find a, a, a deep dive on the wildfires and flood damage research project and you'll have gordon talk about it who is the who is data scientist um, 
working on that project. Um, and all of those links will be in the show, show notes. But what to expect in the conversation today is I wanted to have it pretty open-ended. But at the same time, as always, I will have certain guardrails so that I don't go off a tangent. <laughs> it's usually for Letty to not go off a tangent. So there were some guardrails I put in and a bunch of questions that I asked them. Like the, like the very basic question, right? Like what sparked this research effort and um, what got their attention? Why did they even start to dig into the story? Like why did they think that there is some connection between wildfires and flooding? And then how do they go about designing that research and rallying a team around it to actually do this work? Things of that nature. Uh, what is the kind of underlying data they used? Stuff about, you might hear a bit about data stewardship come up there. We also spoke a very, we touched upon a bit on digital elevation models. And I do want to have a, a full-blown episode on D, DEMs, DTMs, and DSMs. <laughs> that will be in a future episode. But we did speak about that a bit. We also wanted to understand uh, what does this really mean, all of this really mean for first responders and for insurance companies? Because most people are interested in a particular event, right? Like if I'm insuring you against floods, then I want to know if your area is prone to floods. And basically the market and the area that where you are, if the propensity for floods is high, then the premium goes up. But now you have a team that's talking about this interconnection with wildfire and floods. So if there is, you know, a fresh burn scar, the likelihood of a landslide or 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 an increased uh, risk to flood is imminent in this case. And there are implications uh, for first responders and insurance companies in terms of timing, because it's not just your premium calculation. It's now understanding the entire annual earth cycle, because you're, you're not only waiting for the floods, like the flood hit in November, but the wildfire started way before. And even before was this whole um, heat dome uh, event that occurred. So then now you have to kind of track the entire year to create this entire compounded natural catastrophe event that occurred. So those are questions that we asked him about. And we spoke a bit about their background. Uh, what is the kind of research that's going on uh, in Spark Geo and any key takeaway that they have for their listeners. All content related to the research material, the YouTube videos. Um, there is also a mention of wildfire sat so the link to that as well what that is uh, and everything else will be in the show notes and i think let's now move into the conversation and listen to our guest today welcome to my show james and natalia what we want to talk about today is the blog that you put out and for that matter even a lot of content that you've put out about wildfire and flood from the time Lytton went up, I think in June 2021, till that from the heat dome, then Lytton going up in flames. And then you go down to Abbotsford and the Sumas Prairie Lake, right? The whole thing that. So I want to kind of understand this link that you guys have published. And I think it's very exciting because nobody had looked at it that way. Like, what's the connection of the Earth cycle as a whole? So my first question to you guys is what sparked this research effort? Like, where did it all begin for you guys? And what was that research question? that completely got your attention. Yeah, thanks for having us on the, the show, Lady. We're happy to be here. Yeah, the research question that kind of sparked this was us developing something for the COP26 kind of conference. We wanted to have something to present on. And one of the things that we were looking at was ESG goals uh, and what what that kind of means from a geography perspective. You know, we, we look at things from a geographic lens and most things are subject to gravity and flow downhill. So we started looking at what is below, uh, you know, watersheds where we're going to have issues. Um, that led to some of the uh, emergent research around kind of the flooding work we did in Abbotsford. Just looking at, you know, there's, there's pretty simple methods to be able to analyze that land and look at it and kind of predict these flood cycles and how we're going to interact with them. And then that led into the uh, a flood and fire 
their research. Um, and it was kind of like a black swan event where two unexpected events or rare events happen really close to each other. And it just compounded and create, uh, you know, the devastating floods we saw. So that's, that's kind of where it all began. And Gordon and, and co really took it off and made some very, very great visuals, which kind of helped tell that story to a more general audience, uh, while we can do the, the science stuff behind it to make sure that our conclusions are proper. Um, so that, that was the, uh, the start of it and kind of blossomed from there. Natalia, your background is in data. And I think I read fluvial geomorphology. Since James mentioned something about watershed I wanted to understand in simple terms, what exactly is fluvial geomorphology and what were you doing in that research with watersheds? Yeah, so in my past, um, I did my master's um, at SFU and I studied flow and sediment in the Fraser River. And fluvial geomorphology is how water impacts the landscape. So typically, you know, we don't really look at plants um, <laughs> and other types of processes like that, but we look specifically at how water impacts the landscape and erosion and sediment movement and things like that. So that was uh, some of my research at SFU many years ago now. Yeah, so that was um, really helpful in kind of understanding the processes and understanding the linkages and knowing that, you know, you do need to kind of step back because there's so many different processes at play in these types of events. So that really helped out just kind of understanding the research process, understanding how to break things down and, and what questions to ask. Speaking of questions, the papers that you linked in the blog post, they all seem to talk about burn scars. You got to the source of the problem. So could you talk a, a bit about what did you learn there? Like, what is it about burn scars that led to these cascading effects? Yeah, so the burn scars, one of the issues is when we have very intense fires, it creates this crust on the surface uh, that acts that's very hydrophobic. So water doesn't penetrate into it and just and just feeds off. And so when we have these intense fires, that crust gets very deep and we have a lot of water running off instead of getting eroded down and then being able to, to sink back in. Um, and all this water going down has to go somewhere. Uh, so it comes flying down the hill. So when we're looking at like, what are the immediate impacts? Burn scar was one of the, the big things that were contributing to flood and fire. And you know, it happens very quickly. There's some literature around the regrowth and, and how long it takes for uh, for us to start recovering. But you know, we wanted to look at the immediate impact when that fire happened and then there's a flood. That's like just two bad things on top of each other. So yeah, the, the flood for us, the burn fire scar risk was kind of the most exciting aspect of that, being able to tell that story most efficiently, I guess. You're saying the vegetation, the forest area didn't actually get enough time to recover? No, we're saying that there is a recovery period there. We want to look at when burn scars from last season happened. Like what, okay. how did they contribute to that flood because of that atmospheric river that hit? So you know, we had two compounding events and that burn scar was immediate. For us, it was the most effective part. Since the, the effects of the burn scars typically dampen over time. So, you know, the first year there, if it's a big, severe burn, you will have, you know, more of an impervious surface where water can't get absorbed into the land. And then after that, it kind of regrowth happens and, you know, it starts becoming more of that sponge that a normal forest that hasn't been burnt typically behaves that way. So over the first year or two, I think those effects are actually the largest from the research that we've read. And that's kind of what we were focusing on in this work. And then how far back when you say you have to study it seasonally, so how far back are we talking about? Did we go like five, six, seven years back to understand that? Yeah, it's around that time range. So I think there were some studies that that talked about, you know, six or seven years having an impact for six or seven years. Yeah, for the most part, it's really hard to kind of, a lot of this stuff, even though there are some studies, it's, you know, every kind of environment is different. Every forest is different. So they're very localized studies. So we have to kind of take 
take everything with a bit of a grain of salt to to apply it to the locations that we're looking at. Yeah, it's a very good point. Tell you all this is contextual. I did want to ask you regarding contextual because I think somebody um, posted a, a comment to Gordon's story map about this whole burn scars, and he spoke about the same thing about seasonal variations. So he was like, "We got a pre-image. I think you got four images, right? Two pre-images and two post-images." So he was asking on LinkedIn, I believe, like Gordon, could you do a longitudinal study, like actually check that season every year for the next five, six years to see the trend maybe, and then we could come up with some predictors. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that would be a, an extremely interesting study to see the, how the recovery keeps coming up. So yeah, Gordon was looking at Sentinel-2 and did something uh, called a difference normalized burn ratio, where we look at you know how the, the burn happens over two images. So in two locations before and then after, then we can difference them uh, and get a sense of how severe that fire was. Being able to look at this over time will definitely normalize any variations out and then we can apply it to a more general sense so not just in that one basin but you know across all of british columbia and into canada uh, pardon me alberta um, maybe down to the pacific northwest of the united states but you know there are entire teams government and private sector working on this so it's it's an exciting time canada actually just approved some funding for wildfire sat to look at this directly over canada and um, so that'll be very exciting when that satellite goes up yeah we'll get we'll wow. be able to get one can we talk study. more about that just the funding, you know, we got approved in the last budget. So uh, I'm very excited to see what the what the folks at CSA and, and the government of Canada do with that. That is that is exciting because I, I I haven't heard a lot of people do a lot of research on wildfire from a from a satellite lens, like you know, actually mapping wildfire. So that's why I was pretty curious to know if there's anything going around there. If you have conversations with like what does it really mean for insurance people? I was working for ISI, so most of the work we do in the floods, right? So there are a lot of insurance companies interested in floods. But now you're saying that there is a link to wildfire. Maybe we need to go a couple months before the flood starts to figure out our insurance risk, even the premium for that location. Like if is it uh, if the propensity for a wildfire is higher, maybe the premium goes up. Yeah, I mean the, the the beginning of this whole research thing was looking at ESGs and how asset level information uh, can be affected because you can have point information. I can have a whole bunch of gas stations across a basin in British Columbia, but those gas stations getting wiped out by infrastructure just because of floods happening, or are those gas stations going to be impacted by fires coming through? So looking at insurance level things, we have to zoom in and out a little bit and look at the scale so point level and we get into polygons and how do those get affected by natural events um, natalia has been doing a lot of a lot of looking at the esg stuff as well for us and risk so being able to kind of equate what risk to humans means risk to environment is uh it's a tricky balancing act yeah especially like how the hazards themselves you know impact certain locations right and i think you know we're typically just looking at at a point and you know if you're near a river but nobody really looks at like slope and things upstream you know upstream obviously those have big impacts as well so it's not just that one point right and i guess that's kind of what james was just saying as well so i just want to reiterate looking at the basin level which is what we've kind of been doing here and through some of the kind of research that we've been just taking on as, within Spark Geo, we've been kind of really focused more on that basin level and, and how what's actually going on within that basin and what's happening upstream of that basin and things like that. So yeah, it's just been, yeah, it's been interesting to see how these different processes interplay with one another and the scale of, you know, are we looking at this large basin or a sub basin and, 
results impact at those different levels as well. Natalia, if you don't mind, could we like go on forward with the same topic, like about basins and stuff that you're studying? What is the research that you do? Even things like digital elevation models, because I've been hearing that way too much in the stories that I've been listening to. So things of that nature, how does that underlying thing impact your work, your research? Yeah, so there's there's plenty of amazing data sets out there, you know, whether, um, you know, you can get some LIDAR information from uh, the city of Vancouver actually provides a whole lot of it. There's a lot of um, open data sets out there that we kind of leverage, but there's also a lot of amazing open source tools that as Spark Chio, you know, all our developers get pretty excited about gluing different pieces together and making kind of um, a bigger tool set out of that that we can use and reuse. That's kind of some of the stuff that we've been doing. We've been using a lot of different hydrology tools from open source product called Graph. I don't know if you've heard of that. Yes. So so we've uh, been using some stuff from there uh, just to kind of understand. And when some of these floods do happen, we want to see, you know, the impact and see this elevation. What, where's the water, right? And where did it breach? Those types of answering those types of questions, really simple data sets like digital elevation models and simplistic modeling tools that enable us to kind of get those answers and be able to map them out and be able to see what's happening. James, do you want to add into that? Yeah, yeah. On that open data aspect, um, you know, they come in different scales at different resolutions and we have to apply our geographic knowledge to, to look at this and say, I don't think that sink actually exists there. That's going to throw out all of my water calculations. I have to do some data cleaning on, on a DEM data set that I've been given or, or check it at least. The data science proverb or metaphor or whatever is like an iceberg, right? 90% of it is just data cleaning. And the same applies to any type of geospatial analysis is we have this fantastic data set, but we need to make sure that the conclusions we're drawing are valid. So it's not you know, when we're stitching together two digital elevation models, uh, that seam where they stitch together, stitch together is not really on the earth. And any model that we build, any flow stuff needs to either account for that or uh, we have to clean it up before it goes into that model. So playing with all these like open data sets is really cool, but we have to consider that a lot of this stuff is is open and not quality checked uh, to, the, to the level that we need. So when doing this analysis, you got to make sure that the data is tight with the open source tools. And how do you like, like you just mentioned something about the sync not being, not existing, right, anymore. How do you uh, ensure that you have the current knowledge about this? Like, where do you get that information from? I mean, we have <laughs> geomorphologists on on staff to, to look at this stuff. So when we're doing things like topographic wind, wetness index, we'll have remote sensing experts look at this to visually compare and do a qualitative analysis, and then we can explain it quantitatively. Yeah, we just look at the data and think, you know, that is an anomaly in the data, there should not be a sink on the middle of a mountain slope of X degrees. That's just not physically possible. That's the data element that we have to correct. Experience is, is the most part, but that's kind of the, the fun thing about earth sciences. When I want to do experience, I go hiking and be, yeah, there was no sink there. Yeah, definitely. And to add to that, I think, you know, with doing any sort of automated process, a lot of coding work that may not be relevant to, you know, that might just have a number output. Where this, we're kind of lucky because we also have this visual output that allows us to kind of use our brain and and look at the landscape and maybe bring in an additional data set or different things on top of it to say, okay, well, this actually doesn't make sense because all these other data sets show something different or, you know, kind of really critique it from that perspective. So I think, yeah, we're kind of lucky in that way because we can bring in all these different things to kind of paint 
that picture versus, you know, having one source of data that we need to test in a different manner that might be more difficult to kind of understand or visualize where it's kind of depending more on statistics and, and different types of tools like that versus visual tools and being able to actually say yes or no based on logic. <laughs> um, and which is really quite exciting for us. And I think a lot of our team really enjoys that type of work too, to link up the numbers uh, to real life. And I think that that really makes our work kind of fun and exciting. So there's this entire team that does this whole data cleaning, curation, the pipelining, the lineage of data, everything. They actually are data stewards. It, it varies, right? So we're really kind of lucky at Sparkgeo because in between projects or work that we have, sometimes we get a little bit of downtime. And, and this is where we bring in people <laughs> and um, kind of work together on different problems that are at top of mind or, you know, different current events that are maybe happening. And this is kind of driven by a team effort. It's not just, you know, one person with some idea. So I think it depends on, you know, who's in the team at the time and who we have avail available. And then we leverage, you know, other kind of specialists when when required to tap into that. But yeah, it's um it's it's really cool because you know we can actually spend that time on some of these problems in between kind of really you know customer driven work. So everybody really appreciates that here and having that input and creativity to kind of form the project as well. It's it's fun. We're like we're a services company, so we'll work on projects and then as contracts you know wind up. There's some downtime for us. And then we talk about this stuff and some people leave to go work on another project. We get new ideas coming in and sometimes those ideas just take off. In the case of like Gordon and Natalia made an excellent visualization. And then, you know, Raj has been doing a lot of the, the hard science behind this, making sure that the conclusions that we're drawing are valid. So it takes a entire team effort. We all have to be, you know, in data stewards and just keep checking ourselves making sure that, yeah, our assumptions are still valid. Um, you know, we make mistakes all the time, but if we keep checking ourselves and check each other, those mistakes get minimized. We don't go down a completely wrong path. Yeah. And in addition to that, I think one of the pieces is that we are a services company and that is our priority for, for the most part. So kind of managing level of effort and getting some interesting conclusions versus digging really into the hard science. And we're not trying to compete with academics in a lot of this work. And that's, I think, important to kind of mention here. So we're doing our best with the time we have and trying to identify the caveats and identify, you know, what we can and cannot make conclusions on because there is a whole, even when you start looking at fire severity, there's, I'm sure, many scientists around the world studying just, you know, that yes. specific component and, and how that impacts certain things. So we're trying to obviously educate ourselves as best as we can on the existing research. So that's one of the pieces when we put together these studies, we spend a bit of time doing that discovery phase and making sure we've read everything and read all the relevant information that's going to help us move forward with this work. And, and it, it's a lot of effort from that perspective as well. We don't do the actual physical studies in the forest. So we want to make sure that we follow the best work that's out there, that the people that have looked at that and peer reviewed um, their articles and things like that. So it's um, just want to I make think... sure that. <laughs> yeah, yes, I think I remember well. Will mentioning that he, I think on the Nowhere podcast that's just been out, he had this chat and he's like, we are not like a research company. We're a private organization. But even having said that, you know, I think it's really nice that 
you guys actually went that far to even bridge that gap that is missing. And I wanted to know after you published it, what was the excitement that you received? Like what happened after that? Yeah, we got some uh, some great uh, business leads for development. Uh, we had a lot of great community interest, um, which I think is you know the intent of this research project. The business stuff that fell out of it is, is fantastic. That's just icing on the cake. But we wanted to make sure that this is something that the public should be aware about. You know, I think we achieved that aim by getting enough chatter among media organizations and uh, even the the BC government. You know, some of the people reached out and were excited about the the way we told that story. So, you know, I'm satisfied with that as long as we can promote the science that's being done. And BC, fortunately, is the best place to test this right now. There are a lot of good scientists looking at this, and while their heads down. <laughs> getting the data, we get to talk about it and you know, hopefully point people at their their research. Yeah, for sure. And I think one of the pieces that we try to do with this project specifically is that science communication piece, right? Because uh, we had like a, a bit of a retro at the end of the project with the team and, you know, we were kind of discussing, did we do a good job from a science communication perspective? And, and you know, how can we make that better in the future and things like that? So I think for us at SparkGeo, we have these discussions a lot about science communication and we know that we're a whole bunch of you know scientists and developers that are interested in this topic and that is an echo chamber that we are aware of but you know making sure that we're not just writing these articles for ourselves and and that they get like outside of the people that are really interested in this stuff right because i think the people who are interested are more likely to already know about some of these processes versus you know the general public which may not know that some of these events could be linked or you know, where they live, if they're already living in a fire prone area, that flooding might be a bigger problem for them, you know, just little things like that, that I think if we can get that a little bit further outside of our kind of close knit circle of scientists and geographers and developers and people interested in this work, I think we're doing kind of a good job. So it was good to see that this kind of went a little further out. And, you know, even with my kind of family and friends, they were really quite, you know, if I when I sent them the blog post, they were like, they, they got into it, right? Which it's nice to see, especially some science that doesn't lose people, because I find these days, you know, a lot of people don't have a lot of patience getting through a lot of stuff. So we tried to kind of make sure it's easy and people can see what they want when they want it in that type of view. So I think Gordon and the team did a fantastic job with that. I think that really was something special, I think. And I hope there'll be more stuff coming out, which is what I want, what I want to ask you, James, next. Like, what else is happening there at SparkGeo, <laughs> if you can talk about it? Yeah, yeah, there's always lots of stuff happening. Um, so the Cloud Native Geospatial Day kind of uh, happened recently. And, you know, one of the things that got us excited was vector stuff, the Geoparquet formats and Flat Geobuff and playing around with a lot of these newer cloud native vector formats. People are always going to say shapefiles around shapefile, the cloud native vector format. Anyway, these are one of the things that we're going to uh, play around with is like, what's vector look like for geospatial? There's a lot of great data scientists playing with vector data in a different coordinate system. So like, what can we what can we do around that? That's one of the fun things we're playing with. And then, you know, environmental stuff, as always, we're, we're playing with coral reef uh, stuff quite a bit, which is, which is very exciting. The mermaid app, is it? The oh, the mermaid, yes. The, yeah, the mermaid yes, app. Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah, mermaid's fantastic for making sure that we get the citizen scientists involved in, in building that out. Yeah, there, you know, looking at environmental processes are always exciting. And there's two ways you can look at it. There's like the reactive ones where events happen and you have to try and explain why those events happen, what, 
what contribute to that. And there's the proactive ones where you can look at environmental systems and think, okay, you know, this is on some sort of pattern, some sort of schedule. What else happens at these peaks or troughs? So that's, you know, that's kind of the, the area we like to play around with is zooming out and looking at what bigger picture stuff is happening. If you had a key message for the listeners, and in our case uh, specifically now, because we're talking about wildfire in BC, anything for the community that is along Canada's burn belt. So is that a key takeaway from both of you, Natalia, you as well as James? I think look at the research, uh, take the time to to look at the research and read a paper, uh, like a scientific paper. The language in there might be a little bit, bit different, but once you get over that hurdle, it's exciting this, the things that are being done, not just the speed at which bio research is progressing, but the breadth. So how do fuels contribute to this? What are the other implications we have to consider? The, the burn belt, uh, as it would just keep apprised of this stuff, it's, it's going to affect us. So you know, we can either put our heads in the sand and not worry about it or be prepared. And we have some very talented people in Canada looking at this. So keep your head up. Yeah, for me, it's been interesting because I've actually, I was living in Australia in Sydney um, over the big wildfire fire season um, in 2018, or actually, well, 2018 and 2019 were pretty big. We've had some close encounters there and some dangerous situations because it was, um, there was a lot of dangerous situations um, in 2019. I think in Canada, we're much more, um, well, in Australia, they're very spread out as well, but a lot of this was happening along the coastal areas. So that's where most of the people in um, New South Wales live as well. So it was, I think that there's, you know, these events are happening in so many different places around the world, right? And I know that like in Canada, we're been dealing with them more often over the last probably decade. And I think that it's from the research that we've read, it's not going to slow down, right? And I think looking at this at a global scale is going to be really quite important because we're going to have to work together and see what people outside of Canada are also doing to mitigate this stuff and you know there's different approaches and I've and I think making sure that we kind of step out of our own echo chamber as well and look at it at a global scale I think is going to be important and learn from each other especially on the mitigation and like emergency preparedness front because this is still a very dangerous situation for people living in these areas so we need to do better in that <laughs> so that people don't get hurt, right? Knowing that there's events that are linked together like this, that it's not just fire season, right? Being aware that that's happening and better educating ourselves around that, I think is going to be important. And I think the greater kind of academic community, I know that it's typically very siloed <laughs> coming from a geography background, which is why I love geography so much is, you know, we kind of get to link some of these things together and there is a lot being done that way now and a, a lot more being done that way so I think you know just continuing kind of linking some of these processes and the interactions of these processes is going to be important for us to understand it better yeah and there's no right answer on that and one basin to another might be completely different and based on just you know slope as Natalia pointed out earlier what factors contribute to it just understanding what the context is around you and having those tools available can help you mitigate that risk or, or that exposure to close this conversation if there was one thing that any of us could do to start today what what comes off the top of your head like what's the one thing i could start today that could not could be a low-hanging fruit but could also be something that makes me feel like yes i'm contributing to this and i'm actually doing something about this yeah for for me it would be go for a walk today and see what you know we're protecting if you're on that walk and you see some garbage, pick it up. That is pretty low-hanging fruit, and you get get out in nature, get some good mental health uh, going, you get some exercise, go see what, what we're protecting. 
Yeah, I agree with that as well. I think, you know, we kind of, um, especially, I think over uh, the COVID, uh, the past few years, I think people have been going outside a bit more, which has been really good. But we've also, you know, living um, by the Rocky Mountains here, it's a lot more <laughs> garbage in the mountains. So uh, I like James's point about picking that garbage up, because that's an easy way that you can contribute um, and not leave your stuff there. Yeah, I think also, yeah, just educating yourself. Just, I think it starts with understanding with actually happening and not necessarily um, just getting kind of terrified by the headlines because there's a lot of that happening as well. It's understanding the processes, understanding what the potential kind of can happen and how these things interrelate, I think will help people figure out their spot within this whole <laughs> ecosystem a bit better as well. And I think just there's so many different opportunities for that education right now with, you know, blog posts and podcasts and and different kind of methods that can apply to different people and their needs and, and their ways to learn. So I think education, I think, is important within all of this as well. Thank you so much for your time, James. Thank you so much, Natalia. That's it. Awesome. <laughs> Have a lovely Friday. Yeah, yeah, awesome. Thank you so much. So you were listening to conversation on wildfires and flooding in British Columbia. I now have chatted with, I think, four people, uh, like five people in total, and have had four interviews. And I think there's a common theme to educate yourself. There are many ways to look at this. Um, get a degree, get a micro-credential, or maybe even read some papers, as was suggested by James. What we could do is, and I think maybe I might start doing that and asking my future guests to tell us the paper that's currently on their desk. I can start with what's currently on my desk. So I'm currently reading three papers. One is related to fire stewardship, which is this whole concept of wildfires in British Columbia and Canada as a whole. So there's this paper called The Right to Burn, Barriers and Opportunities for Indigenous-Led fire stewardship in Canada. And I will put all the links in the show notes so you could look at those papers if you are interested in these. So that's the first paper on my <laughs> my reading list. The second is characterizing marsh wetlands in the Great Lakes Basin with C-band INSAR observations. This is the second interview that I had conducted with someone who actually was uh, a little uncomfortable to come on the show, but he was uh, very gracious to answer all my questions. And I think I will probably be chatting with one of his colleagues in the future uh, about the same uh, topic, the Great Lakes Basin. And then the third paper that I'm reading is about echolocation. Like this podcast is inspired and also kind of dedicated to bats and uh, specifically this whole issue called um, this new fungal infection that's taking away a lot of bats called white-nosed syndrome. And Letty will focus on the Yukon bats. Because this whole podcast is dedicated to bats, there's this paper that Letty is going to be reading about. That's the whole basis of SAR, echolocation. This paper is titled Echolocation Called Structure and Intensity in Five Species of Bats. And I will put all the links in the show notes. So that's a wrap for this episode. And I hope you've enjoyed it. If you have any questions or comments, you know where to find me. I'm on Twitter at Gowen on the go. <laughs> and I think it's the same handle on LinkedIn. You can shoot me a direct message. That's about it. Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sartastic Beast and Where to Find Them. The intro and outro music is by Yaakov Goldman, courtesy of Free Music Archive. <laughs>